You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. Today is December 13, 2021. It's your host Alex Marku, and on today's episode, I'll quickly talk about inflation and Oreos. And then I'll be recapping my weekend picks and letting you know how I'm very, very close to my first ever 10-pick NFL team teaser. And then I have three new round-robin bet slips I want to give out that are all revolving around basketball. And then to wrap up the episode, I'll be talking about the income statement and the balance sheets. And my goal is to break them down in some more simple terms so that if you're more curious about certain companies, you can start looking into these financial statements without being too intimidated by them. So, I hope you enjoy the episode. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back, apes and retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to be keeping things simple. I'll update you on the inflation numbers that we just got, and then I'll share a funny story that I got off of Reddit of something that's not necessarily causation of the stock market, but there's a correlation pattern. And then I'll let you know what my plan is for the next couple days to scope out some stocks, so that by Thursday, I have another play for this portfolio. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I'll let you know what my plan is on scoping out the markets the next couple days. And by Thursday, I'll have a good idea of what I want to do. So before we hop into all of that, let's go into a quick Apes portfolio update. And it's not looking too hot, as a matter of fact, everything's pretty red. But that's to be expected. After all, GameStop did just have a great earnings report, and they crashed about 10%. Luckily for me, that price just looks like a discount, especially since I bought at 200 if I had enough capital, I definitely would throw in some more money. And I'm talking about enough capital for this portfolio. Because personally, I've thrown in another grand in this play. Because like I said, they've been on a huge discount as of lately. And I think it's a sweet deal right now. Especially right before Christmas. Thanks to all the hedge funds. You're the real Santa Claus. And now speaking of the big red, that's what my portfolio looks like right now because my securities department is valued at about $462.24, my cryptocurrency segment is valued at about $260.91, and then for my gambling segment, it's not looking too hot because my picks this weekend didn't really go my way, but at the worst end, it'll be valued at about $253. I'll still be waiting on Sunday Night Football and the Monday Night Game to wrap up one final teaser to see if I can actually swing this amount in a ridiculous favor, but I'll be talking more about that in the sports gambling segment. Together combined, those totals come out to about $976.15. 
Now my memory is not too hot, and I know I can just check on the last episode, but I believe the last time I talked to you, I said the amount was about $1,155. So this means I've lost nearly $200 since I last talked to you. At least paper-wise, because I haven't sold shit. The only thing that really has devalued this account, though, has been the gambling segment, but like I said, I'm still kind of keeping my fingers crossed on two games to see if I can maybe swing this portfolio value upwards. Regardless, just in time for Christmas, my portfolio is at a discount of negative 11 and a quarter percent. So I've talked to you guys a lot while I've been in the green, but now my portfolio is finally in the red and by a significant amount. So this is where I gotta start getting my shit together. Kind of, because a lot of this shit is long-term holdings, but it would be nice in the gambling section to start getting my numbers up, especially because now I'm at risk of going below my initial investment for it, which was 250. And now that you have an update on my apes portfolio, let me give you an update on something even worse. Because, sure, my portfolio went down by a tremendous amount, but you know what else went up by a pretty significant amount? Our inflation numbers, which was just recorded this past Friday, on December 10th. We were 0.1 away from a historical figure, Inflation for the month of November compared to last year rose 6.8% this year. So this means last year during November, you had 6.8% more buying power. This means you lost 6.8% buying power in one year. Now I wouldn't say it's time to panic, but as a consumer or a saver, I would just be pretty pissed. Because this means that if you're saving your money, you're losing your buying power by doing so. And the annual inflation rate accelerating to 6.8% in November of 2021 is the highest since June of 1982. But that's not the number that frightens me most. The one that really does is the one where we're 9 consecutive months above the Fed's 2% target inflation number. And if I scroll up to look at it, the last time we were under it was February of this year. In March it hit 2.6%. In April it went to 42 Ever since then, we've never seen inflation below 5%. So are you ready for transitory inflation to constantly take 5% worth of your buying power away each year? This means you have to get 5% in the stock market just to beat inflation. This doesn't account for any other costs. This doesn't account for anything else. This is just so you can make your $1 be equal to $1 in the future. Or you can slowly start realizing how the cost of everything goes up. But let's move on to some lighter subjects, like Oreos. Because like I said earlier, I was going to give you an example of something that's not necessarily causation in the stock market, but it's a pretty funny correlation. And Oreos are a key indicator for this method. Now before I continue, all of this amazing DD I'm about to lay upon you was discovered by some guy on Reddit named Lehman Party. And it's Lehman as in the Lehman Brothers, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. But anyways, back to the main point. He found out that there's a correlation between markets crashing every time Oreo releases an even greater stuffed cookie. Alright, now before I dive into this top of the notch DD, let me read you what his thesis is in connecting Oreo as a main primary indicator to markets crashing or preparing for a bull season. So he writes in quote, The increasingly depraved debuts of Oreos with more stuffing indicate unstable amounts of greed and leverage in the system serving as an immediate indicator of that the makings of a market crash are in place. Conversely, when the Oreo team reduces the amount of icing in their treats, markets tend to have a great bull runs until once again society demands to push the boundaries of how much stuffing is possible. End quote. 
So that's what Lehman Party's thesis is, and I love it. On April 27th of 2021, this man laid upon us some amazing DD on Wall Street Bets Forum, and he calls it Double Stuff DD. So his timeline starts off in 1974, where Oreo had its first release of the Double Stuff Oreo. Well, not too shortly after they released this Double Stuff Oreo, the Dow Jones crashed 45%, and the Futures Stock Exchange even dropped 73%. But only having this happen one time does not merit enough room to say, hey look, whenever Oreo changes their cookie, the markets either crash or don't. Until we reach 1987, which is merely 13 years after this, when Oreo decided to release the Big Stuff Oreo. So they said, you know what? We made a Double Stuff Oreo mistake 13 years ago, let's call this one Big Stuff. Well, not too long after that, during the year of 87 in October, there was a day known as Black Monday that occurred, where in a single day, the stock market fell 20%, and this sent the markets crashing into a bear market, coinciding with the same year that Oreo decided to release their Big Stuff Oreo. So, so far, two releases of Oreo with Big Stuffings, two market crashes. And then four years later, we have an inverse example of this. Because in 1991, there was something Oreo decided to do. They introduced the mini Oreo, which meant that they had smaller icing ratios. And during this same time period, it coincided with Japan's final year in their asset bubble period. So although it didn't affect the US stock markets, these mini Oreos were around the same time period that Japan had one of its strongest markets out there, even if it was during a bubble period these mini Oreos were around to see it. If you're not convinced yet that Oreos fillings can determine a market crash or not, well, in 2011, the triple-double Oreo was introduced, and guess what happened? The S&P 500 dropped 21% in a five-month bear market. But don't worry, Oreo had a plan to fix this, because four years later in 2015, Oreo thins were introduced into the market. And then because of the lack of icing provided by Oreos, the S&P 500 went on an unseen bull run for the next couple of years. So far, we've got three examples where there was extra stuffing introduced into the markets and crashes came soon after. And then we've got two examples where less icing was given to the markets and there were bull seasons in store. And Lehman Party did what Hollywood loves to do best, leave you on a cliffhanger. Because this man had to give us the nice kind information that Oreo decided to introduce in 2019 the most stuff Oreo briefly into the market. Now Lehman Party claims that the Oreos were pulled off the shelves before any major market damage could occur. But for the small amount of time they were on the shelves, well, a year later 2020 happened. And not to make things any worse if you're superstitious about Oreos fillings, but this year in 2021, guess what Oreo decided to do? They decided to reintroduce this most stuff Oreo, so they reintroduced it into the markets. Ladies and gentlemen, if you see the most stuff Oreo out there in your Target, Costco, Walmart, or wherever, grab yourself a package, grab some milk, dunk it in, and just enjoy the dips. Because if the market crashes soon, you can eat that Oreo with a big fat smile on your face, knowing that it's this Oreo you're holding, and that's why the world is going into turmoil. Because there's too much damn icing on that cookie. Alright, now I hope that doesn't make you look at Oreos any differently than what they are. They're a delicious cookie that you can dunk in milk. They don't always correlate to market crashes and market bull runs, but it is funny to try and tie things that don't actually pertain to the markets to the stock market itself, especially with an example as wild as this. Because it just goes to show you that there's comedy in everything. 
And even though right now we're at unprecedented times with the inflation rates, just remember to try and relax out there. Because if times are rough for you right now, just know that at some point in the future, things will get better. And if you want, grab an Oreo from the gas station if you need to. Might put a smile on your face. And now the next thing I wanted to talk about before I end the investing segment is what my plan's gonna be for the next couple days until Thursday, where depending on how things go in the market, I might have another play for this Apes portfolio. I believe I've told you my Yahoo Finance strategy, but I'll repeat it once again just to let you know what I'm gonna be doing to try and find some stocks, more or less speculative stocks. So nothing I really know about other than their ticker and maybe an article or two that I read. So what I'll be doing today, tomorrow, and Wednesday is I'll be going on Yahoo Finance and I'll be looking at the top gainers and the top losers list. I'll be adding the price intraday as a filter to this scan so that I make sure the price of all of my stocks are above 10 cents. And then I'm going to be including every single cap, small cap, medium, large, and everything. After that, I'm just going to be hitting search and then looking for the top losers and top gainers. What I'll do then is compile a top 20 list for those three days for the top gainers and top losers. The ones that seem to stand out most, I'll do some research and read an article or two on them, and I might have a play or two on it for this Apes portfolio. My plan will probably be to spend about $50 on this play, but we'll just see how things go. For now, I just wanted to let you know the stock screener that I'll be putting in place on Yahoo Finance to try and find my next play. And on Thursday, I'll let you know if I found anything. Also, since I'm recording this on Sunday, I can't tell you the exact price I sold my Cortezyme option, but I can tell you this. I will have that option sold by the time you listen to this, because I'm going to be getting up tomorrow and selling the option first thing in the morning. Best thing we can do is pray that it just spikes up. Worst case scenario, I sell it at a worthless amount, and I get about a dollar or two back on a $10 bet. As for everything else that remains in that Apes portfolio, well, we're not going to touch it. We're just going to hold on strong and wait until we deposit another $100 to start making some serious plays if I don't find anything I like. Aside from that, I hope you liked today's investing segment on Oreos and an update on the inflation number. That's going to do it for today's segment, and until next time, ape out. Welcome back my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to this part of the sports gambling segment. For today, I'll recap how I did over my weekend picks, which weren't too hot. But we still might have a chance at my insane 10 team teaser parlay, which I'll dive more into after I recap the two bet picks that didn't really do too hot. Starting with my NFC Beast parlay, which lost on Thursday night when the Steelers lost straight up to the Vikings. Granted, I will say they put in some effort in an attempted comeback because they were down 29-0 at one point and they lost by just 8 points. And they almost had a chance to tie the game because one of their tight ends dropped a potential game-tying touchdown if they would have converted for 2. Nonetheless, they still lost the game and right off the bat, my NFC Beast Parlay was doomed. And to add insult to the injury, all of those picks wound up losing. If you don't remember, I had the Steelers, Bengals, Panthers, and Jets to win and, well, all of the teams wound up losing. The closest one coming to a win were the Bengals in overtime, but the Niners won with a touchdown after the Bengals got a field goal on their first drive. Regardless, my first NFC Beast Parlay lost, but I'm not too worried because we're going to be making another one, because you know me, I'm going to be chasing the NFC Beast to make the playoffs this year. My second bet slip that didn't do too hot was my underdog round robin slip. 
because on this bet slip, I had the Steelers, Bengals, Jets, Falcons, Washington football team, Bills, Ravens, and Rams, which they still play tomorrow, to win. But I can tell you right now, since seven of those eight games are done, the only team that won so far on that slate I just told you were the Falcons. So this whole underdog round robin bet slip essentially lost me all the money. Currently, I put in $56. So if the Rams are able to win tomorrow, I'll be able to only lose about $46 worth of this money, but this bet slip was a complete fail because it looked like a lot of the favorites won this week. So I can just remain hopeful that the Rams pull off a win tomorrow so that this bet slip can at least not have 100% loss, even though I do give out a disclaimer that some of these picks have the potential to reach 100% loss. And there's a reason I'm going to quickly gloss over those two bet slips because they lost me money. This next bet slip I want to talk about has potential to win me quite some nice cash. And it's my NFL 10 team pick teaser. So the first pick I had on this was Pittsburgh to cover their spread by plus 9. And since they lost Thursday night football by only 8 points, they covered their spread. So even though at one point this bet looked like it was already written off, the Steelers losing by 8 actually helped someone. And that someone was me. Because it kept this bet slip alive until Sunday, and so far right now, as of Sunday night football and tomorrow's game, the bet slip is still alive. Because I also had the Kansas City Chiefs to win by at least 4, and they destroyed the Raiders after the Raiders decided to meet up in the middle of their field and kind of stomp out their logo. I don't know what they were thinking. But the Chiefs wound up winning 48-9, so the Chiefs winning by 4 was an easy bet. And then I also had the Tennessee Titans to win by at least 3, which they were coming off a bye, and they skunked the Jaguars winning 20-0 at home. The next pick I had on this slip was the Cleveland Browns to cover a spread of plus 3.5. So this meant they could have lost by a field goal and I still would have won my bet slip. But they managed to not choke the game away, and they wound up winning 24-22. Now the reason I say they managed not to choke the game away is because without Lamar, the Browns were up 24-3, and they almost gave the game away. They let the Ravens recover an onside kick, and the Ravens would have had a chance to march into field goal range, but they turned it over on downs. Nonetheless, the Browns winning by 2 helped me cover their 3.5 point spread. And the next game I had on my slate was the Atlanta Falcons to cover an 8.5 point spread. And since they were one of the few underdogs that won on Sunday, well, they clearly covered that spread by a wide margin. One of the next games I had were the Buffalo Bills to cover their spread by 9 points. And at one point, it didn't look like they were going to cover because they were down by double digits. But they wound up forcing the game into overtime and unfortunately lost on a walk-off touchdown. Regardless, their loss by only 6 points helped cover their 9-point spread. I had two more afternoon games to account for. The Chargers to win by at least 4, and they destroyed the Giants 37-21, which most of those 21 points came in garbage time. But the Chargers are winning by 4 was just as easy of a bet as the Chiefs to win by 4. And then I also had the Bengals to cover a spread of plus 7.5. It took a little bit of comeback magic from Joe Burrow, but he was able to send the Bengals game into overtime. And they were close to beating the Niners, but they were only able to put up a field goal on the first drive of overtime, which let the Niners drive down the field and get the game-winning touchdown. Either way, because the Bengals were able to lose by 3, they covered their 7.5 point spread. So this leaves me with two games left on my slate. And right now, I'm recording in the middle of the Sunday night football game, and I need the Packers to win by 7. I'm not going to lie to you, it's not looking too hot right now, because they're down 10-0. And I'm not going to be editing anything if I move along with this. So a couple minutes here in this episode, you're going to find out what the end result is when I clip it in at the very end. 
But for now, I'm really praying that the Packers can somehow pull off this comeback, and I mean comeback in terms of they need to win by a touchdown, because if the Packers can find a way to win by at least 7, then it all sets up my bet slip to just need the Rams tomorrow on Monday Night Football to cover an 8.5 point spread. Which means that if I'm able to tell you later on in this episode that the Packers won by 7, and I'll be super stoked, then that'll mean I'll just need to rely on the Rams to cover a plus 8.5 point spread. This means they can lose by 8 points, this means that they can lose by 8 points or less, or just straight up win. And if that were to happen, I would hit this 10 team NFL teaser. That means my $10 bet would win $250. Now I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but it's still nice to have wishful thinking that after all of these bad bets, I can have one good one, take away all those losses, and then some. So for the rest of this recording and editing, let's go Green Bay. And now, let me give you the picks I have for today, tomorrow, and Wednesday, and it's all going to be revolving around basketball. And since odds aren't really set out, the best I can do is just look at matchups and determine who I like in a certain matchup, and I'll just pick their spread or their money line if they're an underdog for the spread. So let me start off with the first bet slip I want to introduce to you, which is going to be around all the NBA games that are taking place today. Well, all of them except for the 76ers at the Grizzlies. Because what I'm going to be wanting to do for this bet slip is choose all the underdog NBA teams, regardless of how heavy of an underdog they might be. And since today's slate has 9 games and I want to create an 8 pick round robin of underdog NBA teams, I'll be removing my favorite team that's going to be playing, which is the 76ers at the Grizzlies. So this way, even though there's 9 games on this slate, I only have to make 8 selections. And I'm not going to bore you with the matchups because I have zero analysis on this. I'm literally just going to be choosing underdogs and hoping that it's an underdog kind of a night. Because it clearly wasn't an underdog kind of a day for the NFL yesterday. So for this bet slip what I'll do is I'll make the 8 picks and I'll choose all of them to be underdogs and then I'll put a $2 risk for each parlay it creates. So for my Monday NBA underdog round robin of 8 total selections, I'll be risking 56 total dollars because I'm risking $2 for every parlay. And if for some odd reason both teams are pretty much deadlocked and no one's a clear underdog, I'll choose the away team. And now, let me move on to the round robin I want to create for tomorrow. This one's only going to have 7 selections, so there's only going to be 21 total parlays created. I'll be starting off with the first 3 picks for this round robin from college basketball. Starting with Alabama who's visiting Memphis. I like Alabama to cover their spread, whatever it is, because they're just clearly the better team and they've been shooting lights out as of lately. Moving over, we have South Carolina who's going to be visiting Duke, and I like Duke to get a convincing win because they're still on their goodbye tour for Coach K. And then sticking with one last game in college hoops, I like Tennessee to win while they're at home to South Carolina Upstate. Now I don't know who South Carolina Upstate is, but Tennessee has a lockdown defense and I think they're going to run all over whoever this South Carolina Upstate team is. Now hopping over to the other side of the court, we're going to move over to the NBA. And in the NBA for Tuesday, I like the Warriors to cover whatever spread they've got while they're visiting the New York Knicks, especially since it's at the Madison Square Garden. And then moving on to some not as exciting matchups in the NBA, but I'll still be putting my picks on them is going to be the Bulls to cover whatever spread they have at home against the Pistons, and then the Nets to cover their spread at home against the Raptors. For the late West Coast game, it's going to be the Suns visiting the Blazers. 
and I'm gonna like the visiting Phoenix Suns to cover their spread against them as well. Now I'll be choosing all the team's spreads, unless for some reason they're somehow an underdog. I highly doubt most of these teams I listed are gonna be an underdog, but if for some reason they are, make sure to choose the money line instead. And these are the teams I'll be incorporating in this Tuesday's basketball round robin. For a quick recap, I have Alabama, Duke, Tennessee from college, and then in the NBA, I have the Warriors, Bulls, Nets, and Suns all to either cover their spread or win if they're an underdog. Since it creates 21 total parlays, I'll be risking $2 for each parlay, so I'll be risking $42 total on this bet slip. And now let me move on to the final round robin I want to create, which is going to be on Wednesday. It's going to follow a similar format of that on Tuesday, where it's going to have three college basketball games and four games from the NBA. Starting off with the college hoops, I like Wisconsin to cover their spread at home against Nichols. Then I also like Arizona to cover their spread against North Colorado at home. And then to finish off the nightcap for college, I like UCLA to cover their spread against Alabama State. Now moving over to the NBA, I'm going to be having some bias and I'll be choosing the Sixers to cover their spread against the Heat. I also am going to be choosing the Mavs to cover their spread against the Lakers at home. And then I'll be choosing the Cleveland Cavaliers to cover their spread at home against the Rockets. And to finish things off with this bet slip, I'll have the Nuggets covering their spread against the Timberwolves. Just like my Tuesday round robin, this one has 7 selections, so it only creates 21 parlays as well. I'll risk $2 for every parlay created, which is going to make my bet slip come out to a total of $42 risked. And a quick recap on that pick is it's going to be Wisconsin, Arizona, and UCLA from college basketball to cover their spreads and then the Sixers, Mavs, Cavs, and Nuggets to cover their spread or win if they're somehow an underdog on Wednesday. So that's going to be it for my bet slips. One round robin for each day, and they're all revolving around basketball. So that's going to wrap up my sports gambling segment for today. I've got the three bet slips I'm going to be rooting for, and then, well, I'm looking up at the score right now, guys, and the Bears are managing to make a game out of this, and they're up 24-14 right now on the Packers. So I don't think my 10-team pick NFL teaser is going to hit, which required the Packers to win by 7. So I don't think I'll be rooting too much for the Rams to cover their 8.5 point spread anymore. But if I'm somehow wrong, and the Packers manage to win this Sunday night football game by 7 points, then aside from the 3 bet slips I just gave you, we also have the Rams to root for on Monday night football. Because then I'd hit my first ever 10-pick NFL team teaser. If not, well, we can try again next week. So until next time, all my friendly degenerates, ape out. Welcome back, class. Today is going to be a quick lesson on the income statement and balance sheet. I'll be breaking down two of the three financial statements today, and my goal will be to explain the income statement and the balance sheet in simple enough terms that if you're curious enough to look into a company for yourself, you'll be able to look at these statements now and start to understand what they mean. And in prior episodes, I've given you some information off of these financial statements, but I haven't really explained them, at least in a simple way. And that's what today's lesson is going to be all about. So I'm not going to be diving into a specific company's income statement and balance sheet, but instead, what I'll be doing is explaining the overall conceptual idea to these statements. So for today, it's going to be the income statement and balance sheet, and then on Thursday, my plan will be to break down the statement of cash flows. So by the end of this week, I'm hoping that if you're getting interested into some stocks, 
you can actually start looking into these financial statements and start deciding for yourself how strong that company you're interested in is really doing. So let's start with it and get right into the income statement. For starters, the purpose of the income statement is to let users know how a company's performance is doing over a certain period of time. So in terms for the actual company, they're going to be keeping track of a monthly income statement because they want to know how they perform on a month-to-month -month basis. And for investors in the public market, most of the time these companies will release what's known as a quarterly income statement. But the biggest thing to keep in mind is that these income statements measure a performance over a specific period of time. So when a company is looking to see how they performed month-to-month, -month, what it's going to say at the top of the income statement is going to be the company's title, the type of financial statement it is, which in this case is an income statement, and then it'll say something like for the year, for the month, or for the quarter, ended of, and then it'll give you a date. So for example, if the income statement says year ended December 31st, 2021, what that'll mean is the income statement you're looking at is measuring the whole year's performance. So you're going to be looking at a company's whole year performance. On the other hand, if the income statement just said month ended December 31st, 2021, what you would be looking at is just the monthly performance of that company, not what the company performed for the whole year. So make sure before you look into an income statement, you understand what time period you're looking at. Are you looking how the company performed over a year, a quarter, or just a month? And then once you know exactly what you're looking at in this income statement, you can start breaking apart the revenues and the expenses. And typically for an income statement, you're going to start off with your revenues at the top, and then you're going to start deducting all of the expenses until you reach your net income at the very bottom, or your net loss if you weren't able to perform well as a company. So let's start with the revenues, because there's two primary ways a company can earn some money. They can earn it from their operations, or they can earn it from something that doesn't traditionally come from their operations. So if a company were to earn their revenue off of operational stuff, then that would just mean that they're gaining revenue off of the products or services that they offer. And keep in mind that if a company is selling something, they probably have a longer revenue stream because they're most likely not selling just one item. And it applies the same thing to services. If a company is offering multiple lines of services, then all of those services are a stream of revenue for them. And the operational revenues are typically the easiest to keep track of because those are the ones that the business is actually focusing on to stay alive. Another way a business can make some quick revenue is by non-operating revenues. And the way they can record this kind of revenue on their income statement is if they were to sell some equipment, let's say, at a gain, or if they were to collect interest or any other kind of money off of a business practice that isn't really related to their company. So let me give you a quick example. Let's say a retail company out there decides to lend a bunch of their money to a bank and the bank is giving them interest payments on this money that they lent out. Well, this retailer typically isn't a loan officer. So because their business model doesn't really rely on handing out loans and collecting interest, this interest earned is actually going to be a non-operating revenue. So make sure that when you're looking at a company's revenue, you know exactly what they're doing. This way, if you want to, you can keep track of how well they're selling their products or if they're expanding their services elsewhere. Because if the revenue isn't growing or isn't trajected to grow in the long run, you better have a stable company or you better start looking to put your money somewhere else. Because if the revenue isn't growing and the expenses stay the same or only keep growing, well then your company is near the end of its life. And once the company has all of their revenues added up, what they're going to do is they're going to subtract the costs of goods sold. So what this cost of goods sold is, 
is the total amount of expenses that were spent to produce the actual service or good required to produce revenue. So this means all of the costs that were tied into creating the product or any of the costs that were tied into allowing the service. And when you take all of the revenues a company has made and subtract it from all of the costs that were required to produce those revenues, you're gonna get something called a gross profit. And what this gross profit indicates is how well a company is doing on an operational base set. Because this gross profit isn't gonna be the net income. You're still gonna to have to subtract additional expenses like marketing, advertising, general and administrative, and other expenses that the company has tied to them, including taxes. But what this gross profit tells you is how well a company is doing from just an operational standpoint. Because you're taking all of your revenue and you're subtracting the total amount of labor, the raw material, and any amount of overhead that went into creating that revenue in the first place. So this gross profit shows you how profitable you are in your operational standpoint. Now after you get this gross profit number, you're still going to have to subtract some things. Because you still have to pay the people that run the company. And I'm talking about the high salaried positions. Because those typically fall under the general and administrative costs. Then if you do any kind of marketing, you're typically going to tie those expenses together as well. So any kind of marketing, advertising, or social media promotions that you do, you tie all those expenses in as well. And then to comply with GAAP orders, which is accounting principles that US companies have to follow if they want to go public, what you're going to have to do on the income statement is record the depreciation, amortization, and interest expenses for that current period that's being affected that you're talking about for your income statement. So if it's for one month, then you only have to record the monthly damage that the depreciation, amortization, and interest have. Now that's just a generic template for what some of these expenses underneath the gross profit might be because it's gonna vary company to company. One company might have research and development listed on there and another might have something else. Regardless, it's important to distinguish the difference between the two expenses. Because anything that's attached to the cost of goods sold section is going to be considered an operational expense. So this means these expenses are needed in order for those revenues to happen. Anything below it is going to be considered a fixed cost, at least in the eyes of that business. Because they're viewing the marketing, general and administrative, and depreciation expenses, and anything else like this, as a fixed cost. Now it's still a cost that is attached to the business overall, it's just put underneath the operational expenses just to let the investors know what kind of other indirect expenses are attributed to the company's income statement. So after you get your gross profit and you find out what all of these fixed expenses are, you're gonna get yourself to your total earnings before tax. Then depending where you do business, you're gonna be paying tax off of that rate. And then taking the total from earnings before tax and subtracting the total tax you pay will get you the total net income for that company's period. Now why this net income number is important is because it not only shows you if the company is profitable, but it also lets you derive to another simple metric known as the earnings per share. Because now you can take the total net income and divide that by how many shares there are in the company out there. And then this way as an investor, you can get a general idea how much your shares were worth during this time period. And the earnings per share isn't always going to be correlated with the stock market in the short run, but in the long run, if the earnings per share for a company continues to grow and only increases, then I can tell you that if you get in early, you're going to pick a strong company that's going to pay you out well in the long run. So to essentially recap the income statement in some easier language, 
We start off with how much money a company makes at the very top, which can be split into two ways. We can split it into the money the company makes off of their actual business practices, or we can also tie in some of the money that they've made that isn't related to their business model. Then by adding those two numbers up, we can determine how well a company performed over a certain time period, whether it's a month, a quarter, or a year. And what a company does next is let us know the costs that were associated to producing those goods and services that they even sold. So they're going to let us know what their operational expenses were in the terms of something known as cost of goods sold. So by subtracting all of the revenues we got for that time period from these cost of goods sold, we can see on an operational level how well this company performed. Then after we've gotten ourselves the gross profit, the company is going to let us know which expenses they view as fixed and then any other expenses that typically wouldn't be charged for that period. And by totaling together all of these fixed expenses and subtracting it from the gross profit, we get ourselves what the earnings before the tax is. And then depending on which area we live in, we pay a certain amount of tax based on that tax rate, which then gets us to this net income. And this net income is a great measure to see how well a company was able to perform over a certain period of time. It also lets you know as an investor, off of a certain metric known as the earnings per share, which way the company is projecting. Because you can compare their earnings per share with their prior income statements and see which way the company is projecting. And if it looks like your company is starting to pick up their shit and figure it out, I would say hold them for the long haul. Because at some point, it's going to pay off. It might not pay off in the short run, because earnings per share isn't always directly correlated to a good stock price. But I can tell you this. If the earnings per share in a company continues to go up, at some point the stock price will catch up. So it's best that you just hold on to that baby. The next financial statement I want to talk about is the balance sheet. Unlike the income statement that measures a period of time, the balance sheet is like a snapshot. So instead of seeing how well the company is performing over a certain period of time, the balance sheet lets you know how well a company is performing in that moment. So using December 31st, 2021 as my example, if a balance sheet shows that it's as of December 31st, 2021, that means that as of that date, that's what the company's snapshot looked like. Remember when I was explaining credit cards and how banks can take a snapshot of all the debt you have at any given moment so that they can determine your credit utilization score? Well, you can think of a balance sheet as a similar thing. It's a snapshot of how a company is doing in a given moment. And normally what's going to be on these balance sheets is the total assets, liabilities, and shareholders' equity that the company holds. So let's start off with our total assets. The total assets on a balance sheet are going to be comprised of two things, current assets and long-term assets. For current assets, companies will typically record their cash and cash equivalents, accounts receivables, and inventory in this section. So when you're looking at the current asset section for a company, that means that as of that date they have listed above, that's the total amount of cash, cash equivalents, which are any short-term marketable securities, and if you're doing a quarterly balance sheet, that means anything that can be liquidated within three months or less, since there are three months to a quarter. Then you've got your accounts receivables, which I explained in an earlier episode, and you've also got any inventory products on hand. So what's included in inventory? Well, it's any raw materials, work in progress, or finished goods that the company has. And all of that is going to be included in the current asset section for a company's balance sheet. So when you're looking at a company's snapshot, and you're curious how much money they have on hand right now in the short period, 
this is where you would get that information. Now, if you were also curious to see what the company held long-term, you can look at their non-current assets, which is also known as the long-term assets. Typically, what's contained in these long-term assets is any property, plant, and equipment, which is also known as the company's tangible fixed assets. And then you have the intangible assets of a company, which in a company's case can or cannot be identified. For example, one identifiable intangible asset would be a patent, a license, or let's say like a secret formula for how to make Coca-Cola. An unidentifiable intangible asset would be something like what's your brand worth and how much goodwill your company is worth. So this means if you were to sell off your company, how much extra money are you worth because you have a nice little Starbucks logo with a mermaid on it? How much are you worth because you have yellow golden arches? This kind of value can be very subjective, but it also has to be measured, and that's what can be viewed as an intangible asset that is unidentifiable. And then if you were to combine these long-term assets with the current assets of a company, you would have a snapshot of the total value the company brings to the table. And even though it's important to understand the snapshot and the total value that a company can bring at any given moment, it's equally important to understand the opposite side of the equation. And that's what are the total liabilities and shareholders' equities. And I'll start off with the total liabilities, which are just like the total assets. You've got current ones and long-term ones. In your current section for current liabilities, you have your accounts payables, which is essentially the same thing as accounts receivable, but obviously an inverse of the account. And then you also have to record any current debt or notes payable that isn't included in that accounts payable section. So maybe you've got a loan on the side that isn't tied to this account. You would have to include that as a separate notes payable, only if it was due within one year or the company's operating cycle, whichever is longer. And the last thing that's included in the current liabilities, if it's not lumped together with the notes payable segment, is any portion of long-term debt that's going to be paid off within the upcoming year or operating cycle. So this means that if a company has a 10-year loan out, they're going to be including all of the current portions of that loan on this upcoming balance sheet. And by totaling together all of these current liabilities, you're able to get a snapshot representation of what the company is going to be owing the upcoming year or operating cycle, whichever one they see is longer. And the operating cycle for most of the companies you will invest in is typically going to be a year, but the reason I say whichever is longer is because for more complex scenarios like military purposes and construction projects, the operating cycle might actually span out to be more than one year. For example, think of the company that creates those aircraft carriers. Do you think it's going to take them about a year to create one of those? No, it's probably going to take a lot longer. So for them, an operating cycle might be, I don't know, five, eight years, whatever the cycle is to complete that whole project. But looking only at the current debt a company has isn't enough because you want to know how much debt they're holding in the long run as well, which is why we also look at the non-current liabilities. And in these non-current liabilities, what we're typically going to find is the amount of bonds payable they have. So this means for the total amount of bonds they've issued as a company, what they have as a liability on that. And then they're also going to be including the long-term debt that isn't included in the current portion. So this is to take into account for all those loan years that aren't in the current period. By totaling together all of the total long-term debt, you're able to see how much of this company is fueled by debt. And when I move on to the next section, which is the shareholders' equity, you'll be able to see how much of this company is actually driven by debt compared to its equity. Because in the shareholders' equity department, you're going to have the share capital of all of your investors and then the retained earnings that you as a company are holding for itself. 
So let me talk about the share capital of all of the investors, which is just the value of the funds that the shareholders have invested in your company. And typically this number is made up of the preferred shares listed on the market, the common stock that's issued to the public on the stock exchange, and then any other modes you have to acquire investors in your company on an equity basis as opposed to a debt basis. Which just means that instead of an investor taking up on your bond offer, they buy your stock instead. You're still getting an investor's money, but one of them is willing to give you the money up front right now by buying your stock instead. So the total accumulation of all these investors that are invested in a company is what makes up part of this share in capital. And the last bit of the shareholders equity section is the retained earnings. Now the retained earnings is the net income that the company decides to keep for itself. So this means that whatever net income the company gets for that income statement, if they don't pay out a dividend to their shareholders, then that net income now becomes retained earnings, which is additional capital the company has to reinvest in itself or choose to do whatever it wants. It can pay off loans, it can do whatever it wants. And then by adding this retained earnings number to the total value of shareholder funds you have, you get your total shareholders equity. But what's more important is you can see how much of the company is driven by equity as opposed to your debt. Because when you add your total shareholders equity, and total liabilities, what you get is you get the total assets, which makes sense if you sit back and think about it. So now let me try and break it down in a simple language. Pretend that we've got this piggy bank of buying power, and we can buy all of our assets with this piggy bank. Well, we're uncertain right now of what portion this piggy bank is full of debt, which can be known as our liabilities, and what's full of our equity, which is the shareholders' equity. So when we go out there to the bank and ask for a loan, what we're doing is we're fueling our piggy bank with debt, which isn't a bad thing because now we have buying power to buy these assets. On the other side of it, we're also trying to see if someone trusts us with their money, as opposed to going to the bank every time. So we really like the idea of going public into a market so that people can invest in us with their public money. So now the more public interest we get from investors, the more we can drive our business with equity as opposed to debt. So if a lot of people like our business, what they're going to do is they're going to invest their hard-earned money in us. But what we can do is take that hard-earned money and turn our business into a better model. We can revamp some product lines. We can pay off some debt. We can do whatever needs to be done to pay off these business functions. And we have this big piggy bank that can be either fueled by equity or debt. But at the end of the day, this piggy bank is the only thing that lets us buy any of our assets. So it only makes sense that the total amount in the piggy bank is equal to the total amount of the assets we buy. And it's also an accounting thing I'm not just making up. It's called the balance sheet equation. I was just trying to see if I could explain it in a simple way, and I hope I have. But if I didn't, just remember that for the balance sheet equation, the total assets are always going to be equal to the total liabilities plus the total shareholders equity. And by knowing that formula, you can determine how much of a company is driven by equity and how much is driven by debt. Because all you have to do is take the total liability and divide it by the total assets. And if the number is over 50%, then you know that more than 50% of the business is being driven by debt. Whereas if the number is below, then you know more of the business is being driven by its equity which means there's more trust out there by investors, and this could potentially help the company because they don't have to pile on more long-term debt for the future. So, in recap, the balance sheet is a snapshot of a company's performance at any given moment. Unlike an income statement that lets you know how a company's been performing over a certain period of time, 
This balance sheet lets us know exactly how the company is doing at that exact moment in time. Another thing it tells us in the total assets section is how well a company will be able to handle itself in the upcoming year with the current liquidity it has, the total value of the property, plant, and equipment they have, and other intangible assets they might acquire, and then on the opposite side of the equation, we can determine how much of the company is driven by debt and how much is driven by equity. Because in the debt section, we can find out how much of the liabilities are current, and then based on what the current assets are, we can determine if the company will even survive for this upcoming year, or if it'll have to ask for more debt. And then we're also able to view how much debt the company is holding in the long run. On top of that, we can see how much of the company is also driven by its shareholders investing money. Together, by looking at all the components of a balance sheet, we're able to get a rough idea of how a company is doing at any given moment. So this means we can see key indicators if the company is going to start struggling or if there's nothing to worry about because the company has a strong balance sheet. So now that this lesson is over, I hope you have a little bit more background knowledge in an income statement and a balance sheet. And if you've got an interest in some companies of your own, well then by all means look into those financial statements. Try to interpret that income statement and balance sheet to the best of your knowledge. And for the things you don't understand, just don't try and interpret them. Ignore that stuff and try to understand the things you know. And if you've made it this far into the lesson, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until next time, ape out. Yo, the Packers 145 to 30. Let's fucking go. Now we rooting for the Rams, baby. 